Hey everybody and welcome to the Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay and today we're going to be diving into 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 again. We're going to start up in verse number 27 and look at all things being put under the feet of Jesus and in the respect of His authority as resurrected Savior and as the Son of Almighty God in His connection to, to eternal things. So, very exciting episode that we're able to gather together with and some exciting portion of Scripture that we're able to dig into. So, let's get to it. Father, we are grateful for your blessing. We thank you for everything you've done for us this day, for all things that you've been allowing us to do, Lord. We pray that you will just be with us in this time, that we may receive of the richness of your word and be filled thereby. Thank you for everything, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, we come to the reading of Scripture today in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Beginning in verse number 27 and following, the scripture says, For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are, the bapt are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord that I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Almost sounds like he had a complete shift in, in, in speaking, a complete shift in the understanding from one moment we're talking about baptism and the next moment we're talking about keeping ourselves righteous before those in our communities because there are those who don't know God and as they see us sinning, then they are inclined not to believe God or to believe in God wrongly. So we have these two pretty interesting paths that are put in our, our way this section right now. And so we're going to look back at 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, beginning in verse number seven, 27, rather, and dealing with, he's put all things under his feet. And let's take a look, because when, when, like in this translation, which is New King James, they have things capitalized like this, you're, you're looking back at a situation of Old Testament writing. And in this case, we're going to the book of, of the Hillels. We're going back to the, the book of Psalms. And the, the scripture comes from Psalms 8, chapter, or, well, I'll, I'll call it chapter 8, because the Psalms are a book of songs, and so they're not actually chapters, but uh, for us to be able to find it and understand it, we'll just go with chapter. So we say Psalms chapter 8 and verse number 6, the scripture says this, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things 
under his feet. And so from the testimony that, that the Apostle Paul is drawing from the Old Testament is the reality that Messiah is to come in the name of, of Elohim, in the name of God, Yahweh, as we know him, or Yahuwah, which is, is a term that I was just studying the other day as a compilation of the different ways which they would speak the Tetragrammaton, but uh, it's really cool explain that later but that it would be uh, the Messiah's work in in being the the express image of the Father God and that all he would say and all that he would do and that God the Father would bring all things under the Son now we realize this from the Gospel of John in chapter number five so I want to call you to the Gospel of John in chapter number 5. Now, keeping in mind what the Scripture says here, for he has put all things under his feet. Now look at what else it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28. So that when we go to, for, to the Gospel of John in chapter 5, it makes sense. It says, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this, this shouldn't require any explanation. Now, in our modern day, it does require, require a great amount of explanation because we don't think with a Hebrew mindset. We are very much a Roman society, even though we are in the United States of America. The way that we've been raised up and taught in the church has been in the Roman way, not in the Hebrew way. And so, a lot of these allusions, a lot of these allegories, a lot of these poetry that would be spoken by the authors throughout the whole of Scripture often elude us. They often go over our heads because we're trying to approach it from a Roman perspective when it's written with a Hebrew mind. So it's very important to realize that, that we have a great deal of study yet to do to be able to have the whole volume of the Word of God be unlocked unto us. But as he says... In verse number 27, here, 1 Corinthians 15, but when he says, all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, this is the point that God is, it's understood that God is the one that's in authority. God is the one in control. Even from the perspective of Jesus, who would say, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even to the perspective that, that Jesus in his earthly life as our Savior and as, as is taught by the church in, in the, the Trinitarian belief is that Jesus is as much in essence as the Father, as, as the Son. And, and in fact, that the concept of begotten of the Father means that Jesus is the direct substance of the Father. He's, he is in every way as being equal to the Father except for in position. And so that we would find this is a common occurrence that happens throughout the Scripture. For we know that, that a man and a woman are equal in every conceivable way as concerning their design and makeup. I mean, after all, woman was taken from man. And so uh, from woman and man, they are direct substance of one another. Yet there are different roles as established by God. There is different position, even though they are equal, equal in their, their framework, in, in their makeup. That's how we're able to have children is because we are made in, in equal DNA 
so that the the X and the Y can come together and make new new life. And that's the way it was necessary. And we stand equal spiritually in the position of sinners because both had eaten of that fruit that was commanded not to be eaten of. So we're equal in material, we're equal in spiritual, but before God, we are positionally separated because God is God has established roles for men. He has established roles for women. And it is all the way back at Genesis chapter number three. So it cannot necessarily be blamed on the apostle Paul. <laughs> That's very important to understand. So we get the point as as the son is in every way the father he is direct substance of the father which is why he wasn't made which is why is begotten so he's direct substance of the father and 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 is equal in every way save position for as the father is over all then the son is is sent by the father as messiah to redeem that which has fallen to redeem all that everything worked to the plan of God. And thus the Holy Spirit, as we know to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit today, is to carry within us the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and be emboldened to proclaim that testimony to the world, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is something that is accepted. This is something that is expected yeah, for the for the church at Corinth to understand, which is why in verse number 34 that the apostle Paul would then go on to say, I speak this to your shame. It's because it wasn't being affirmed. It wasn't being taught. It wasn't being understood by the people when it's something that should have been known. And unfortunately, I would have to say that a lot of the churches in our modern day are in the same position that the church at Corinth would be in and that there are a lot of things that no doubt should be accepted, that should be understood readily by the church, but they're just not. And again, the reason why a lot of these things are are uh, blinded to us is because we've spent more time in, in the pastorate roles, I'm picking on pastors now, but we've spent more time telling stories and we've spent more time swapping scores and goals and, and, and talking other things that make no difference in eternity at all. And we've spent more time speaking in allegory and, 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 and communicating through all of these tales and stories and stuff like that instead of teaching the reality of the whole Bible's connection in Jesus. And at that failure, we have a bunch of people who are connected to story time when they come to church but can't handle the, the, even the simple basics of God's Word because they're just waiting for that story. And when the entertainment isn't that good or it's over their head or completely uh, swiped them on the side because they, they, they've never truly had doctrinal truth preached, that they, that they miss it. For instance, connecting Psalm 8 and verse 6 to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 27 and realizing that uh, this is a reality of fulfillment of the Father through the Son. And only the Holy Spirit can give you this. And he says, now in verse 28, he says, now when all things are made subject to Him. Now, subject to who? Well, this isn't subject to Christ. When everything is made subject to the Father, it says, then the Son himself also will be subject to him. Well, of course, the Son is already subject 
to the Father. The Son, as, as revealed earlier, did not come to do His own will. The Son did not come to testify of Himself. He testified of the Father. So the Son dwelt and, and basked and lived in the Father's will. <clears throat> and here you see that, that all things would become subject to, to the Father by becoming subject to the Son and the Son bringing them all in. And it says that the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. So the position of where we are before the Father is under the blood of the Son, that God may be all in all. Now, take a look. You, you have this rapid explanation between 27 and 28 here. Now, take a look over at the Gospel of John in chapter number 5. We're going to begin in verse number 20, the Gospel of John in chapter number 5. In verse number 20, well, let's go to verse number 19. You can always add a little more context to the point. In verse number 19 of John chapter number 5, the scripture reads forward, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you that the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so the point of John 5:19 to verse number 29 uh, connects up with what the apostle Paul is speaking here at this level of all things being under his feet for in that when Jesus stands as the judge over all things that 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 which has been considered good and and that standard of goodness as being having received the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior through the repentant heart of confession unto God of the the fact that they're sinners and being forgiven by God 
and to that which was good that has longed for Messiah, that has rather, regardless of the age, rather those of the Old Testament that were raised with Jesus and Matthew 27 from verses 50 to 53, or those of us who are raised at the last trumpet that is to come, that that mark of being good is that that trust that we had in the gospel's message and in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And at that point, we shall be raised to eternal life. Uh, or at least our bodies will catch up with the rest of our spirits anyways to that place of eternal life. But those who have done evil, and the mark of evil is is less than being good, right? So what is the definition of evil? If good is the repentant heart that has confessed its sins and has received the forgiveness of God and the salvation of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, then evil is that which has rejected the gospel's message, rejected the repentant heart, rejected the forgiveness of God, and is still in its sin and thus under condemnation is revealed in John chapter number five. And so, it, these things are all going to be at a point put under his feet uh, and and at that point to give glory unto the Father that he be the head of all things and be in all things. So that's 27 and 28 in connection to John chapter 5. Now, as we move forward, we see this this point that he is making a, a little bit of a uh, little bit of a taste of sarcasm in the apostle Paul, but I like his his method and I like his point. He says, "Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all?" Now, what I mean, you've gone through baptism, uh, and and. This scripture really isn't going to make sense to the Roman mind because the, most people in churches today don't even realize that the baptism that John was doing was a baptism that was normal throughout the several, what, a millennia or, or at least several hundred years of of the, the synagogue's existence as well as that which would happen all the way back with Solomon and the temple. Even, in fact, baptism that we are familiar with, the immersion of baptism, was something that was happening all the way back with, with Moses in the tabernacle even, <clears throat> so that we would realize that uh, if a person was going to swear an allegiance, for instance, the Apostle Paul here, the Apostle Paul was was under the tutelage of the Rabbi Gamaliel, right? He was one of the foremost rabbis of his time. I mean, he's just an excellent gentleman, but there were multitudes of rabbis that were in existence during the time of Jesus's life. And so that the Apostle Paul, being being able to train under Gamaliel, would, would have baptized or would have gotten baptized into the teachings of Gamaliel. Literally, within a synagogue setting, he would have surrendered to an immersion baptism in, in the resemblance of surrendering everything that was Shaul of Tarshish at that point uh, to the teachings of Gamaliel, being a disciple of his. And so the baptism that is that that we follow that that is pattern of the church is is literally a, a and as much as an identity to to the leader of our life and that would be for us Jesus as we have submitted ourselves to his teachings and have 
carried faith in him as our Lord and Savior. So we receive his baptism because we now have chosen to follow him. Just like before the apostle Paul would receive that baptism of 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 Ananus, Annas in in Damascus remember when he got baptized in Acts chapter number 9 and the scales fell off of his eyes well it, it he is surrendered unto Jesus and to Jesus's teachings to be a disciple of Jesus and that was why he was baptized in in the name of Jesus in this direction Whereas for most of his life growing up and then entering into the Pharisaical order, which the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the scripture refers to him, he would have had a baptism in the name of Gamaliel as being a disciple of Gamaliel and a follower of the teachings of Rabbi Gamaliel. So you see how this baptism was being used. Now, the Apostle Paul is making the point here that if you were baptized in the in the name of Gamaliel, you're baptized in the name of, of any other rabbi that would be out there. He says, what do these disciples of these different rabbis do if they're baptized in this rabbi's name to follow their teachings? And, and that when those rabbis die, then then they do not rise at all. Then there, there is no resurrection for them. Well, what's going to happen to those disciples? There's no resurrection for the disciples because the disciples are following the teachings of their respective rabbis. And so if the rabbis do not have resurrection or or have a hope of resurrection, then the disciples do not have a hope of resurrection. And so everybody's wasting their time. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. He says, what do they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? I mean, if if this person is not going to have eternal life, then why in the world would I want to follow him to begin with? Now, keep in mind, the Apostle Paul really has an, in, an intimate connection with this because he was originally baptized under in the dead. Essentially, he was baptized in the name of one of the dead. Now, it's not to say that Gamaliel was not a follower of God. And it's not to say that Gamaliel did not have a hope in in the resurrection as as he would have been before Jesus' time of living. And and even though he is during the time of Jesus' life and at the death of Jesus, we understand that Gamaliel was actually in the council of the Sanhedrin that was trying to decide what they were going to do with this Jesus. And it was Gamaliel who spoke up and said, well, if this work of this rabbi is of God, then none of us are going to be able to stop him. And if this rabbi's work is not of God, then it will dissipate all on its own. And Gamaliel's point was, leave this guy alone. If he's of God, then we ought to honor it. And if he's not of God, then God will get rid of him because God can. We won't be able to do anything about it. Well, needless to say, it doesn't matter. The point being is that Gamaliel had not surrendered his heart to Jesus as the Messiah. And so if indeed he would be separated from God because he didn't accept the Messiah, then what good would would the baptism of Paul be in the name of Gamaliel when that name is not above every name? Look at uh, Acts chapter number four real quick. In Acts chapter number four, this is 
the Apostle Peter's teaching in Acts chapter number 4 and verse number 11 beginning, well, verse number 10, better context. He says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, very important to understand that it is in connection to the name. And, and that is the point that the Apostle Paul is making in, in this place of, of Corinthians is to say that if, if I'm baptized for the dead, I mean, in any other name than Jesus, if I'm baptized for the dead and the dead aren't going to rise, what good is it? <clears throat> he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. Imagine the idea of, of the necessity of, of, of having to put down the nature of the flesh and the desires thereof every day to live for God. Now, it's something that we are wholly unaccustomed to, even in our, our, our Christian ideology here in the United States, because again, in our Christian churches and in our ideology, we're very Roman. We're very content with the idea that all we have to do is just ask God for some forgiveness every now and then when our lives get out of control, and thus we receive the forgiveness of God because we ask for it. And he said, if you ask anything in my name believing, you shall receive it. So we ask God to forgive us, but we don't change the nature of our heart nor pay attention to the wretchedness of our activities. And so when we know we've done some bad things or when people expose the bad things that we've done and tell us about them and, and, and make it known, then we enter into a state of temporary repentance where we feel bad for what we've done and may ask forgiveness. But it doesn't take a very long period of time for us to dive once more right back into the wretchedness after having a, a layover or a period of time because we, we believe that now it's all forgiven so everything's okay. And that's not the truth at all. But of the necessity of dying daily is in the recognition that every day that I, I wake up, my eyes grace the glory of God's earth and sky, that I realize that in this day there's a possibility that I could be wretched. And I have to acknowledge every single day that as I arise to the nature of this world, that that world is in me and that I need to be in Christ in whom I have been baptized in the name of and who I have sworn through my baptism an allegiance to service to. Now, if Christians kind of really changed the way they thought about their nature and relationship to Christ, perhaps Christianity itself would be completely different in the U.S. Perhaps we might actually find a morality coming back into the church. We might find activity coming back into the church. We might find sinners receiving Christ and getting saved in the communities around the church if the nature of the church would change from its direction of, well, I can do whatever I want and then I'll just ask God to forgive me and he has to because I belong to him 
2, I have sworn my soul to Christ. I have given my life to Jesus that he could bring the gospel to the world through me. And I have been baptized in Jesus' name to be his disciple and follow his teachings. Boy, wouldn't that change us. That, I truly believe, would change us. By the way, that's the Hebrew mind. That's not the Roman mind. That's the Hebrew mind. Perhaps we need a little more Hebrew in us. He says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, I, I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, what advantage is it to me? Uh, he says, if, if I were to have been arrested and, and had to fight animals in the arena there at Ephesus, what, what difference would it make if I didn't believe in the resurrection of, of Jesus? What, what difference would anything that we do in this life as concerning the gospel, what difference does going to church make? What difference does, does the music make? What difference does the preaching make if Jesus had not been resurrected? What difference does any religion make if our Savior has not risen? Religion is in reference to that which claims Christianity. Obviously, the world's religions are make no difference at all. But this one faith, this one truth, and this one life is found in Jesus. If, if Jesus was not resurrected, what is Paul's advice here? If the dead did not rise, then what is his quote in verse number 32? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's take a look because there's a connection also to the Old Testament. So let's take a look at that. Uh, oh boy, look where we get to go. Ecclesiastes chapter number two. Uh, good old Solomon with, with his uh, wisdom that God had granted to him. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 24. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I, I saw, was from the hand of God. But then what does he say? Rejoice in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse number 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Uh, this, this is funny because it, it's the sarcasm of Solomon in, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse number 9. This is the sarcasm of Solomon. He says, uh, rejoice in your youth. You know what? Party it up. He said, walk in the way, walk in the ways of your heart. Follow your heart. People always say, by the way, that'll get you right into trouble. But he says, follow whatever your eyes see, but understand that you will come unto judgment from God. In other words, not exactly a smart thing to do. Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, in uh, chapter number 22, in verse 13, the scripture says, But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine, let us eat, drink, 
for tomorrow we die in its connection to the point that Isaiah was making in prophecies, saying that this people have nothing to do with God, could care less about God. They claim to be the children of God. They claim to know God. They, can't, they claim to be believers in God, but they live their lives as though it doesn't really even matter. It's just a religious thing that is done, just like all the other religions of the world. Who cares? And of course, Isaiah chapter number 56 and verse number 12 Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow we will be as today, and much more abundant. Let's just keep this party rolling, and what good is it going to do you when you stand in judgment for having been rebellious to God's truth? And guys, resurrection, do not be deceived. The Apostle Paul warns this people, and we must receive of his warning today. Do not be deceived. Evil company, and, and of course this is the company that the Apostle Paul is referring to those who have come into the church at Corinth that have brought just heresy after heresy. And, and, the, and the word heresy just simply means a, a, a teaching that is aside from the, the orthodox teaching of God's word. The, these are teachings that are not in accordance with that which is written in scripture. These are teachings that are aside from what the apostles had commanded. And, and, and having said all of these things, the, this is the position that is discovered for this people as that they, they are evil when they come into uh, connection with the body of Christ and that their connection to the body will bring forth a corruption that will change the way that things are done with the church. He says, awaken to righteousness. And this is the challenge that we have before us today in verse number 34. He says, awaken to righteousness and do not sin. Awaken to righteousness. This is, this is a call. This is a clarion call from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth to awaken to righteousness. Why? Because the church has fallen asleep. The church has allowed false doctrine to come in. The church has allowed for entertainment to come in. The church has allowed for false teachers to come in and for, for, for a Laodicean approach to the service of God to come in where they're lukewarm and not good for anything. The church is, it has, has fallen asleep and not, not been uh, vigilant to the adversary that it has, for the devil is longing to shut down the voice of every church in the world. The devil's desire is to silence the gospel from the proclamation to see souls being born again, seeing souls won for the kingdom of God. The, 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 the devil wants to silence the Christian because it is his message that, that it that causes a jealousy in the people Israel to come, to return to God. And it is a message that causes the, the children trapped under the, the weight of that old devil and Satan in his kingdom to come out of it unto the glory of God. And so he does not want you to have a voice and he does not want you to have understanding. He does not want you to be effective in the ministry that the Holy Spirit is crying out from within you to come out and speak to the world 
around you. He keeps you gripped, that old devil, by fear. And he keeps you gripped, that old devil does, in, in, in all kinds of busyness and in all kinds of directions that would take you away from the ministry of the gospel. He keeps you so inundated by this world and the things thereof that you are rendered useless to Jesus. That old devil knows exactly what he's doing. And the problem is, is that the believers, maybe even unto this day, certainly with the church at Corinth, obviously, as would be written in the Apostle Paul's letter here, but the believers of today are, are so deeply asleep that this, this cry is something that we, maybe our heart needs to be jerked into motion by this. Awake! to righteousness. Awake! Wake up! Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for that one statement. Just wake up, church. Wake up. Awake to righteousness. And thus, the Apostle Paul, he already knows that he's got some detractors. He would say, but some will say, in verse number 35, he said, some will say, well, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And they're, in other words, they're putting straw men out there. They're putting hypotheticals out there to try and detract from the main point that is being made concerning the power of God and the resurrection. And, and, and there's no standing for this. Of course, there, he'd already started in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 with talking about the 500 brethren that had seen the Lord Jesus during his ministry in the 40 days before his ascension up into heaven. He'd already, you, you knew about Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. You knew about Jairus' daughter. I mean, there's already been ample proof of the dead being raised to life again. It's already been de demonstrated on several accounts. And even through the ministry of some of the apostles, has there been resurrections that have happened because that God had made known in, in the, the testimony of Jesus that these things were going to, to occur but there's constantly going to be these people who are going to say, how is this possible? And in what way can this possibility occur? How are the dead raised up? And with what body are they going to come? And, and of course, we could chase after those rabbits if needs be to be able to explain what the resurrection is going to be like. But it isn't necessary for the Apostle Paul moves us to verse number 36 and he says, foolish one. He says, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Now he's getting into the realm of what is so familiar to the farmer, isn't he? He's getting into the realm of the planting and the sowing of seed. And to be honest with you, I think that we are going to tackle this one on Thursday. I think that would be the best time for this because I, I won't have time to be able to get deep down into this um, for, for the sake of getting this uh, loaded up today for it to be able to be viewed, but also because it just, we really need to just dig in on the planting of this seed and then go back to the parable of the seed and the sower, and we need to connect a few things together. So we'll tackle this uh, on Thursday because tomorrow, of course, is going to come to Wisdom Wednesday, and hallelujah for that. We're going to be in Proverbs 11 uh, once more. It's going to be really exciting. So definitely want to catch us then. Let's ask God's blessing upon this, this one theme that we have for our day today, awaken to righteousness. Father, bless us and give us 
the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the reality of your truth, and the necessity of being awakened unto righteousness. We need, Lord, your mercy. We need your wisdom to be poured into our hearts. We need this this scripture to come alive in us, to come off the page, that thy Holy Spirit can use it to transform the way we think, Lord, about a lot of things in our life. For indeed, we have proclaimed that we are your disciples, and yet often we approach your ministry from a Roman mindset that really doesn't have much of a desire for ministry at all. Instead, Lord, give us wisdom to know how to think like Hebrews, and maybe that will change the direction and nature of our service toward you as understanding that we have sworn an allegiance to you and that we have sworn an allegiance to your message by, by the baptism we have received in your name as being disciples of yours. Oh, Jesus, so bless us in this and help us today to be the saints in light. And we'll thank you in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Well, guys, may God bless you, keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and I look forward to catching you tomorrow for Wisdom Wednesday right here on the Preacher's Corner. Take care.